Listening Dog Media. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The best bit of advice I think I was ever given is not in a live situation, but if you swear a lot, they can never use it in the edit. So if you really don't want something using, That's, swear. It, I've only and, just and learned it that. It just has to be cut. It's the right tree. I've only just learned that. Every time I do a shit take, I'm like, tits. How to DJ. How to DJ. DJ. How to DJ. You're lucky that someone's given you a stage. Bloody use it. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins, and this is How to DJ. You're essentially a ringleader, bringing in like an amazing song here, a brilliant story over there. You sit there sometimes and think, oh, God, I don't want to do TikTok. How to DJ. A podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds, and experiences of much-loved DJs, where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45. It makes you feel a bit well-armed, to be honest. And for this episode, I'm with a DJ you may know from this. We're just normal men. What do you mean, normal men? We're just innocent men. She was a face of CBBC. It's absolutely brilliant. It provides such a wonderful service to children. She's a reporter on The One Show. One minute I'm <laughs> DJing to a crowd, next minute I'm doing like a report on like A&E waiting times. It's all a bit mad. And she's the host of Capital's Early Breakfast Show. I remember being so utterly grateful for that because I remember thinking, that's wonderful. They're looking past the gunge and the puppets and the silliness and the skits and the sketches. And they're looking at me and saying, she can do more than that. And every time I listen to music, I have such strong visceral memories attached to songs. Lauren Layfield, welcome to How To DJ. Ah, thanks for having me. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. And before heading into the box of questions here, tell me, Lauren, where did you grow up and where did you go to school? I grew up in the deepest, darkest Midlands. I grew up in Warwickshire, where um, there was nothing like a media scene at all. So I'm always surprised that I've ended up on the radio because I used to look at my local radio station and be like, oh my God, they're the biggest celebrities that our region has ever seen. It was Mercier FM, my local radio station, and it was the Black Thunders used to be their street team. And I used to think when I was a kid, all I want to do is be on the street team. (laughs) That was my dream. (laughs) Did you ever get to do it? No, because I remember I emailed them at the like tender age of about emailed them. I wouldn't have emailed them, would I? It would have been I would have written them a letter and sent them a letter at the tender age of 13, 14 and said, please, can I come and hand out some leaflets for you? And they said, unfortunately, you're too young to do it. So it never came around. But it, it's so funny. I remember that being the biggest thing in my area. That was like Anton Deck, Holly Willoughby, they were up there. Whoever did the breakfast show at that time, they were elite. And I used to just be obsessed with radio ever since I found out they existed. So was that your first taste of doing something in the spotlight, media or whatever it might have turned into? 
I think it was, yeah. I didn't really... Before then, I looked at everything in the media as stuff that other people did. You know, you had to be from London if you were someone on the telly. It was just so miles apart from our little town where we grew up. So when I realised that they were down the road in Coventry, I was like, whoa, that's amazing. People from around here actually do stuff like that. This is wicked. So that's what kind of led me sort of towards it. And I I realised at 14, I want to be a radio presenter. And I wormed my way into my local hospital radio. And that's kind of where it all started, really. How were those early shows? Uh, do you know what? Like one of my fondest memories was where I did the radio show at my hospital radio. The radio, if you can call it a station, the radio room was on the same level as where the morgue was. So you would be halfway through a link and you would start hearing the rattle of metal beds coming down the corridor, taking the bodies to the freezers. I'm genuinely, I genuinely am being honest with you. The morgue was on the same level as the radio studio. So there you were trying to do a chip link and you'd hear like the rattle coming down and you're like, oh yeah, there's the body off to his resting place. (laughs) (laughs) And what did you do when you left school? Well, I went to Lincoln, first of all, to do a drama degree. So this is the kind of degree I don't speak about very much because it was rubbish. I was not meant to be an actress. I don't know why I went and did a drama degree. It was a very, very silly decision that disappointed my parents greatly. Um, And I kind of got halfway through and realised, oh, this isn't for me. What do I I want to go and do? I'm not really feeling this. Kind of had committed to a very expensive university course. I'd met my now husband there. So I was kind of, you know, just pretty happy plodding along. I thought, well, let's just get to the end of it. And then afterwards I go, okay, well, what could we do here? Like, how can we actually go and do something like radio? And I kind of looked around at all the people that did this for a living and realised they fell into kind of two categories. They were either um, presenters, shiny ones, you know, who did entertainment shows, or they were journalists. I thought, well, maybe we could go and study broadcast journalism. And my other half, he'd done broadcast journalism. And I was always quite envious because he got to do news reports and radio reports and things like that. So I went to Leeds and then did a fantastic like course. Did It was essentially like a master's course. And you did brilliant stuff. Like they have, you know, one of the biggest TV studios outside of London, up in Leeds at this university. They had a proper radio studio, different booths, proper microphones. They were able to kind of dial into the frequency of the community radio station in Bradford so that you could actually be on air, you know, do it proper. And uh, yeah, they did this one year intensive course where you just learned the ropes about how people do this for a living and work in the media. And it was phenomenal fun. It We had the best year doing that because it was kind of a joke, but also it was really real. And it was actually teaching us how you do it. And it set us up to kind of go and work in the industry afterwards, which was wicked. And how did that turn into kids TV? So this is, I mean, basically, Chris, I'm older than I look. So um, it's, it was a long journey. I'd love to say that I discovered kids TV at the age of like, you know, 21. I was all fresh and I love. I didn't reach children's television until about the age of 20, the age of 27. Can you believe, Chris? I was so old. But in, in that world, it's pretty ancient. And what happened was after I'd done my journalism 
course. I'd started working in radio stations as a newsreader. I ended up working for shows then like The One Show, you know, in that kind of journalism space and making the newsier reports that you see on The One Show about hospitals or, I don't know, conservation or something like that. And then it was when I was there, my other half, Luke, who loves you, by the way, he is the biggest Chris Hawkins fan in the world and he wouldn't let me go on this podcast without telling you so. Found one. Yes. <laughs> he exists. He exists, Chris. Um, and he said, oh, um, he was working at CBC. He was working as a script writer for CBC. He said, oh, they're looking for girls at the minute. You should send your show really. And well, I didn't really have one. It was just me doing lots of news reports about sort of local bin collections in Leeds. And I thought, I can't send them that. They want, you know, fun, vivacious, gregarious people talking about fun things like slime. But I sent it in anyway. I got an audition and sort of rest is history, if you like. Well, uh, yes, to the point where I've got a picture of you with my daughter at one of the <laughs> things that you did that she could come to. And, and that hangs in my downstairs toilet. Oh, fantastic. That's the only place I wanted to be, actually, in your house. Kitchen, no thank you. <laughs> Living room, no. Toilet, I want to be right there front and centre when you go and use the facilities, Chris. <laughs> Tell me about what it's like. It's, I think, a fascinating world, kids' telly. It's a really interesting world. It's so, I mean, it's just so iconic. We all grew up with kids' television, which is why it's a little bit difficult at the minute because there's lots of question marks about how it's going to continue, whether it lives, you know, online or, or whatever. But ultimately, I think for so many generations, we all grew up with it, whether it was that you were coming home straight after school and banging on Blue Peter or whatever it might have been, you know, news round, all those kinds of classics, or or whether you're a bit more modern and you watch it on, you know, BBC iPlayer, whatever it is. It's absolutely brilliant. It provides such a wonderful service to children because it, certainly when I was there, it was reflecting all of the adult programs if you like all of the big people's programs but in a sort of kids form so we had everything we had the big shiny floor saturday night anton deck-esque shows we did basically it was almost like a knockoff of um celebrity juice but for kids television without all the rude stuff uh, you know comedy panel shows we've got obviously news for young people we've got dramas which were doing everything from you know silly stories about girls in dance troops through to them covering storylines like relationships and first kisses and coming out you know it was just everything is taking all the things you need to know as a young person and making it understandable for a young person it's just brilliant and to be a part of it is absolutely brilliant what kind of grounding do you think doing it gave you as a presenter I think a lot of people who work in kids' television will say the absolute gift you get from it is that that's where you make all of your mistakes and you can do so without getting into loads and loads of trouble. So, I mean, I got chucked on air doing live television. I'd never done it before in my life. And one afternoon they came along, they said, right, so I know you weren't supposed to go live this afternoon, but we've had the presenter can't come in because they're not very well. So are you happy to go live? And you're going, oh, um... Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, it'll be fine. Yeah, be... So you don't eat because you're so nervous at lunchtime and you're in the studio and you're being given these scripts. And by the way, there's no auto cue. So, you know, you learn the script, you try and memorize the script 
and then you go live and you hopefully do the script. And my memory is like a fish, so I would forget things all of the time. And you sort of just cross yourself and pray for the best. And I mean, so many times doing those live things, I forgot what I was saying, started talking some nonsense, got put off by Hacker the Dog, as many people know. And um, it's okay. It's sort of like the beauty of it. You know, you're allowed to get it wrong. And I think that that gives you a real sort of, um, it makes you feel a bit well-armed, to be honest. It makes you feel that when you leave children's television, the worst has happened while you're on air. So nothing can phase you anymore, do you know? People go, oh, do you get nervous when Ed Sheeran comes and does a big interview, you know, on Capital? And I go, well, no, because I've almost sworn on air in front of children's television and it was okay. You know, the worst has happened. So you don't feel so nervous, you know. Tell me about that hacker moment that's gone so viral. Uh, what is the story behind the normal men clip? Well, this is what everyone wants to know. And unfortunately, it's a question that we've not got an answer for because we can't remember. The best explanation we have come up with, which isn't particularly fascinating, when you're at CBBC in, in that capacity, your job is to tease the programmes that are coming up next to make the viewers stick around and enjoy them. And we'd shown a clip of this programme that was coming up. And as far as we can remember... It was some kind of scene where someone was getting into trouble and they were getting interrogated. I don't think it was by the police. I think it was by like a school headmaster or something like that. And Phil Fletcher, who is the genius behind Hacker the Dog, he turns to me and he says, while the clip's going out, while we're on live television, we're kind of out of shot at this point. The clip's playing out. He whispers to me, he says, don't say anything off the back. I'm going to say something. Now, when Phil tells you that, it's sort of heart in mouth at that moment. Um, the producers in the gallery all start panicking because he's going wildly off script. And you just go with it and see what happens. And again, this is the beauty of it because in how many television presenting jobs do you get the opportunity just to not know what's coming up next and just having to roll with it? So we come off the back of it. He tells the sound man, don't put the music, don't put the bed up underneath, leave that off. And he just starts whispering to me, we're just normal men. So I go along with it and I'm thinking, well, I don't know what he means. What do you mean we're just normal men? We're just innocent men. And for whatever reason, I don't know if it's the delivery or, or his little face, the fact I knew that Phil was chuckling away underneath the puppet with his hand up his ass. Whatever it was, it sent me into hysterics. The music kicks in and it's this kind of mariachi kind of... I don't know, this little little Mexican kind of ditty that comes in. And that was it. And it's gone viral and it's been viewed millions and millions of times. And I'm telling you, my phone is still pinging months later with people enjoying this clip. It's gorgeous. There's something very, very charming about it. Okay, well, I'm kind of glad that I think I now know a bit more about what happened. <laughs> a bit. Lauren, tell me, was there always an anxiety for you at CBBC about what happens next? Massively. In fact, um, one of my mates who also works as a puppeteer, he always said, you have to just leave. You know, when it's time to go, you have to just make a clean break and off you go because you never want to get that sort of hanging over your head that you're just a children's television presenter. And I do take that point. We did, you know, that it's been very hit or miss, you know, with children's television presenters over the years. Either they sort of fade into the background and they, you know, go and do something else completely, whether it's by choice or not. Or some of them go on to be the biggest television presenters in the UK. 
And I think there is always that pressure of wanting to prove that you can do that little bit more and that, you know, you're you're more... I guess when you're in kids' television, there's an element of you're playing sort of a character to an extent. There's a lot of authenticity in it, but there's also stuff, you know, I was... 31 years old and I was still getting slimed and gunged and talking to puppets and that's a weird thing to do when you're 31 years old and all your mates are having babies you know so at some point you want to be an authentic version of your own self as well as you know having a really fun life doing kids television and and there is a, a funny little balance to be had and yeah, it was something that definitely started to play on my mind towards the end of CBBC, which was why I was so grateful when Capital gave me a call and they said, would you like to come and demo? I remember being so utterly grateful for that because I remember thinking, that's wonderful. They're looking past the gunge and the puppets and the silliness and the skits and the sketches. And they're looking at me and saying, she can do more than that. And I was just felt so privileged because that doesn't happen to a lot of people in CUC. A lot of people will do their time in CUC and that'll be the end of that. And yeah, to be taken on to work at Capital was just the loveliest blessing. And to be able to do, you know, I had a, a few years of sort of crossover and it was lovely. Had you DJed before? No, it was all very, very new. It's something I'd always looked at and thought, oh, I'd love to do that. I would absolutely love to do that. But I'd never given it a go. I think sometimes until you have to do it, you don't immerse yourself in it because life is busy and you've got 101 other priorities at the time. So, yeah, it was quite intimidating at first. And I, I remember being really finger pointing when I was younger because I knew a lot about sort of you know radio and radio presenters and, and people working in the music scene and thinking, well, they've known what they wanted to do since they were very, very young. And, you know, you get people who work for years to get to being on Capital, for example, or the BBC or wherever it might be. And I remember being very waggy finger about like, oh, I just don't think television presenters are, are cut out. I think you should have passion. and then. It came to me and they asked me to do it. And essentially, I was coming off the back of being a television presenter. So I very much had to swallow my own pride on that one a little bit and go, oh, what a fantastic opportunity, though. You're going to have to double down on that one. Do you remember your first show? And if so, how was it? I do remember my first show. The strange thing was, is I was living in Manchester at the time because I was still doing CBBC at this point. And hilariously, Capital had um, signed me up a few days before Christmas and went, so can you move to London by the 4th of January? And I went, uh, no, I've got a um, mortgage and I've got a house in Manchester and um, I don't think I can just move down south and start a show. So they were brilliant. And they said, well, I'll tell you what, you do the show from Manchester for four months to start with and give yourself time to get yourself sorted down south. And um, so I was doing it from Manchester, which already felt very strange because stupidly, I mean, this sounds really odd, but I'd done all my demos down in London and just the sort of, the atmosphere is different, I think, from, from studio to studio. And I'd kind of got used to being in those London ones and having this producer there that had been looking after me. And then suddenly it was like, right, you're doing it for real. You're in Manchester, different studio. I'd been paired up with um, a producer from Manchester who was essentially there to kind of just help me on my way and sort of get me going. And I remember just feeling so, oh, it's just awful when you do it for the first time. It is awful because you're just praying everything goes right. You desperately, desperately want to do a really good job, but you don't know what you're doing. I don't think you know what you're doing in radio for at least six months. I think it's all just an absolute wash of information 
and just praying every link goes correctly for about the first six months. I don't think you get comfortable for ages. I remember my main priority on the first few months was just say the words in the right order. I, I didn't want to get anything beyond that. I didn't care about doing a cracking link. I didn't care about being particularly entertaining or funny. All I wanted was just to get from A to B and play the songs in the right order. Uh, mostly, I think we got there. Not completely. <laughs> but um, it's, it's weird. How much do you prep, Lauren? <sighs> Not enough. <laughs> I don't know about you. Uh, you probably prep a lot more than I do. With my show... I only do two hours, so I'm very, very blessed. It's a very short show. And by the time you factor in a lot of the things that you you must say that come from the powers that be above, so, you know, today we're setting up this competition. Um, We're going to sort of tease forward into what's happening in Capital Breakfast, for example. That's two links down. Um, We've got this new song that we're going to play today, so that's three links down. You're not left with, actually, an awful lot. In the early days, I prepped everything. I would write scripts every day, scripts, and I'd read it almost down to the word to make sure that I didn't mess it up. And um, I realised that actually doing it that way makes you a lot worse. It makes you very ingenuine. You don't sound real. It sounds rehearsed. And we're not there for that. You'll know this at that time in the morning. Nobody wants to feel sort of bombarded with information. That slickness is great for later in the day, but actually what people really want early in the morning is just a nice chat and a friendly voice and something that's just going to reflect the day and what's coming up or, you know, what might have happened last night. Or And I realised that everything that I was enjoying and the audience was enjoying was me coming in in the morning, having a little look at sort of what the flavour of the day was and just having a chat about it. It doesn't often have to get much more complicated than that. And, you know, you go into your breakfast shows and you'll have those bigger set pieces, those bigger features, and they're brilliant and they really, really work. Nobody wants a massive, great big feature of 4.10 when they're knackered, (laughs) when they're getting up for work and they're miserable. They just want a chat. And I think that's why I've been there three and a half years now doing it. And that's why I enjoy it. And that's why I hope our audience enjoys listening to my show anyway. Fingers crossed. How about DJing out? Did that come before or as a result of the show on Capital? Oh, completely as a result. I never even anticipated that being a radio presenter might lead to being an actual DJ in a club. And it was a real surprise to me going, oh my God, someone's asked me to DJ their night. How on earth do I do this? So I started literally looking up like YouTube videos about people going to have how to beat match. Uh, All those kinds of like buttons, explaining little buttons and what they do. I must admit lockdown came at a very good time for me because it gave me time to go, right, let's buy some kit. Let's learn how to do this. And I, I love it. I really, I'm still a learner. Like I still panic every time I go and do a gig because I don't know what I'm doing still I've got one this weekend actually and I keep looking and going oh I was supposed to plan on that about a month ago and we are creeping up and I really need to get a move on and sort my set out but I love it it's so much fun and I assume that you enjoy mixing doing the, the radio show and DJing out to with what you do on the one show as a reporter I'd like to say you know that I had a consistent career but apparently it's very volatile one minute I'm DJing to a crowd next minute I'm doing like a report on like A&E waiting times for the one show it's all a bit mad 
you know, I worked on The One Show 10 years ago as a researcher. It was one of my first jobs after I became a broadcast journalist. So I used to be behind the scenes, coming up with all the ideas for the films that we were going to make, and I would hand them over to the director and to the presenter, and off they would go. And it's such a weird thing now to be the person who is the presenter. And nothing's changed. The films are exactly the same. The formats are all the same. You know, I wrote the questions 10 years ago that I am now asking now. But it's just so lovely. I love it. And and for me, like mentally, it really balances me out because I find when you've done a lot of pop music, you've done five shows a week, you know, talking about Ed Sheeran or Joel Corey or whatever, it's really nice to be able to kind of mix it up and go and do something that's a bit sort of beefy and a bit chunky, you know. <laughs> Lauren, it's time for the first of your five picks from 45 in this record box. All the questions are on 45 sleeves. I'll dip into the box. You say when, when you want me to pull one out, okay? Okay, this is exciting. Yeah. When? All right. So here it is, your first question then. What's the best time you've had behind the decks? Oh, oh, do you know what? I did a brilliant gig last summer and it was for a charity called ActionAid. And the brief that they wanted was um, we want it to be all female artists and we would love loads of world music because that's their kind of thing. They are looking out for women, particularly in third world countries who struggle to get access to clean water and feminine hygiene products and all that kind of stuff that I just absolutely support and agree with. And um, it was so nice. It was so refreshing for the first time. I didn't plan a set. I just rocked up with a whole load of music. It covered so many genres. Obviously, female and world music is a massive remit, isn't it? And I just turned up with loads of stuff that I've never played before. And it was just a joy to just, you know, just work it out as I was going along. And the feedback I got off of that was better than most gigs that I planned meticulously for weeks and weeks on end. It was a joy. I loved it. And, you know, like I said, I play lots and lots of pop music all of the time. So when you can drop a little bit of 70s disco into anything, I am a happy lady. <laughs> what music did you grow up with? What, what, what did you listen to as a, a teenager? So I was, as a teenager, if you can imagine me with black hair, a lip ring. I wore black leg warmers. I wore plaid skirts. I had black all over my eyes. Emo and pop punk was my generation. And I'm loving it in the minute because it's having quite the resurgence at the moment. The BBC have done lots of podcasts around it and it, lots of songs kind of have come about back on TikTok. And you've got new artists like Olivia Rodrigo, who is tapping into that sort of punky kind of vibe it's still pop it's not kind of quite the moshy music that i used to listen to but yeah i was a proper little emo kid question two say when when please <laughs> very polite <laughs> uh, who have you got to thank for your career oh well uh gosh there's loads of people that's the thing like so many people help you on your way don't they i would say back when i was training to be a journalist I had um, a tutor called Richard Horsman who, um, he essentially just helped me identify that I was good on air. I wasn't very good at being editorial. I wasn't very good at running the newsroom and saying, you know, what should be the lead story that day. But he really encouraged me and said, you know, you could be really good on air. And I didn't particularly think of that as a talent, I guess, at the time. I just thought that, well, 
anyone can kind of do that stuff. But then you sort of come to realise that not everyone can be on air. And a lot of people find public speaking quite difficult. And I wasn't very versed with it when I was younger. I was not like the biggest performer or anything like that when I was at school. Never got put in the school plays, which was really annoying. And now, yeah, thanks to him, I think it made me realise that you can develop that as a skill and have it be your the reason you've got bread and butter on the table, do you know? So I've got him to thank. Um, I've probably got a few people at CBBC who just kept me rolling from one brilliant show onto the next brilliant show. People like Ewan Vinicum who kind of hired me for the first time and Cheryl Taylor was the boss there at the time. Those people that just sort of continue to say, oh, we need to use her, you know, she can do this. That was really lovely. And I, I do have to, I hate to say this, but I do have to thank my other half. Because I feel like if he hadn't been at CBC and looked over someone's shoulder and seen that they were looking for female presenters and tell me you should go for that, I would have never have known. And I would have never have known how to get in touch with the BBC. That would have been completely beyond my realms of possibility. So annoyingly, I'll have to thank my husband. <laughs> how to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Still to come. You know all these whimsical people that say, I'd love to write a book. Can I just say, just don't. Just don't. Are you kidding? You have to give me a heads up about this so I can give it at least 14 working days to think about it. Oh my God. Okay, back into the box. All right, say when. When, please. <laughs> Once a CBBC presenter, always a CBBC <laughs> presenter. Question four for you. Right, this is um, song titles as questions. Okay, this is one of my favourites <laughs> in the box. So answer these three. The first is, do you know the way to San Jose? No, I don't know where San Jose is. Is that, well, is that a country or is that a city? <laughs> my geography is very bad, Chris, I'll be honest with you. I once thought that Latvia was a made-up country, like Narnia. <laughs> Got it in the neck for that, didn't I? Um, does your mother know? Oh, God. Actually, do you know what? My mother um, has just joined Instagram. She doesn't post pictures herself, but she uses it as a spying tool. So I suspect that my mother knows more than I'd like her to know. And finally, is there life on Mars? Yeah, but it's like microbes and stuff, isn't it? It's very small amounts of life, isn't it? David's not up there. Or is he? <laughs> right, back into the box. Say when. Uh, when, please. What's the best bit in your bio and what do you choose to leave out? <laughs> That's a great question. The best bit in my bio. Let me have a look and see what it is. I feel like they don't give you enough characters. I'm, you know, I'm a fully um, well-rounded individual. I can't possibly fit all of that into 140 characters, can I now? Oh, it's pretty boring. It's pretty dry, my bio, to be honest. It's not great. Well, it depends what bio you mean. See, I've got my Instagram ones or I've got my, you know, my lengthy one on my agent's website. That's a bit more jazzy. And what are you most happy to shout about that's on there? Do you know what? My, on, my, on my agent's one, which is like the full Lauren Layfield debrief, I am most happy to shout about the fact that I... Ah! Oh, I've got a, a book coming out next year. That's coming out. So that's on the bio at the minute. What's the book? It's about a teenage girl who is a prolific liar in order to blag her way through life. So that's coming out next year. And the reason I'm most proud to share that with you is because I've got no attention span at all. I cannot sit still. And yet, Chris, I sat down and wrote 60,000 words. I couldn't even write 6,000 words when I was at uni doing my dissertation. 
So I'm really happy to share that with everybody. That's amazing. Is that as a result of lockdown? I started it before and I thought it was going to be well and truly wrapped up. And now two years after lockdown started, I'm still writing the thing. Oh, it never ends. You know, all these whimsical people that say, I'd love to write a book. Can I just say, just don't. Just don't. Don't write it. Nightmare. <laughs> right. Uh, one last. Oh, no. The, the What do you choose to leave out of your bio bit? Oh, I mean, a lot of stuff. <laughs> I was going to say, I suppose that might be your worst ever job or something that you did that you really regret now. Mm. Yeah. Do you know what? I choose to leave out of my bio is the fact that I worked as a cleaner for a very low budget hotel chain once and when you work in a low budget hotel chain the the things that you find on a Saturday morning after the Friday night before is horrific I'm not going to say more than that because it would put everyone off their dinner and I got paid about one pound per room that I cleaned at the time so nobody needs to know about that career (laughs) highlight do they (laughs) okay one last question from the box Lauren a final one you say where um, stop! Please. <laughs> How does being a DJ make you feel? Oh, what a lovely question. Being a DJ makes me feel... This sounds so ancient, but it makes me feel quite young. Is that a really corny thing to say? Maybe it is. It makes me feel music is one of those unifiers and it brings people together and it doesn't matter sort of what genre you're into, whether you're playing capital pop music or whether you're listening to emo music from uh, the 2000s or whether it's David Bowie. I feel like music is such a unifier and while there's music on, you can't feel anything but like you're feeling life do you know you're feeling those emotions will take you back to when you were you know a certain point in your life maybe your wedding day maybe when you're a teenager whatever it might be and every time I listen to music I have such strong visceral memories attached to songs whenever I'm listening to it it throws me back a few years I go oh yeah that was that tune that was on a night out when we were at university or oh that song was that really sad song when I was you know broken up with my boyfriend at the time so I love that because I'm such a nostalgic person it makes me feel youthful and I love that even when a new song comes in you'll attach a new memory to it as well so in five years time you'll think of that song as being like oh it's when I did x y and z so yeah that's how it makes me feel it makes me it throws me back in time somewhat that's a brilliant answer. I've just got one last question for you, Lauren. Yes. There's some kind of non-specific catastrophic event with a caveat that you, Lauren Mayfield, have to play the last three records on Earth. What would those three records be? Oh, that's the worst question. Are you kidding? You have to give me a heads up about this so I can give it at least 14 working days to think about it. Oh, my God. It's catastrophic, okay? So, the, okay, so what do I want to listen to before I go? I'd like something epic, you know, in those final moments. Maybe it's like a big tsunami that's swooping in or whatever it is. So I'd like something epic as I go out. So maybe like A Circle by Bonnevert, maybe it would just be like something that would just like wash me away to the sounds of A Circle. That'd be quite good. Before we get there, I want to feel like I'm on a bit of a high. So I'd probably like something a little bit like... um disco-y that we can all have a good like dance to so maybe Donna Summer or something like that I don't know which one don't ask me to pick but something just like really everyone's up we're all having a drink it's, it's a great we've had a good life 
And finally, my favorite pop song of all time, which is Justin Bieber and Sorry, which is cheesy, but I'll love it. <laughs> Till the day I die. So I'm listening to that as I go out as well, twerking my way into the abyss. <laughs> Lauren, thank you so much. You are such a real star. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's been an absolute pleasure. Lauren Layfield, and that was How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from. <laughs>